you're listening to The Dirty Boots Show. Hey everyone, this is Chris Nixon with The Signer and co-host of The Dirty Boots Show. And I'm excited today to introduce our guest, Aaron Klein with Boom and Bucket. How's it going, Aaron? Great. Thanks for having me today, Chris. So tell us a little bit about yourself and maybe a little bit of your background and maybe, uh, you know, that elevator pitch for Boom and Bucket for those of our, our guests that may not be familiar with you guys. Yeah, happy to. So um, I actually started off my career in the U.S. Navy. I uh, flew fighters F-18s for 11 years with the Navy. Got out in 2011 after I had kids because I wanted to coach basketball with me around for uh, for school plays and stuff. So uh, 10-month deployments weren't hacking it for me anymore. Immediately got out and uh, went back to school, started working in early-stage technology ventures, primarily in the industrial space, like uh, construction and uh, agriculture as well, especially uh, data-backed uh, businesses. My partners and I started Boom & Bucket uh, about two and a half years ago um, as the trusted partner for used equipment. So we run a full managed end-to-end private party sale for, for sellers, and we help buyers find equipment they know are going to be ready to work on day one. No, that's interesting. As you said that, I know we're going to dig into maybe a little bit about your naval background and how that kind of has influenced. Um, I had a good friend in college that was an ROTOC. Is that what I'm saying it right? ROTC. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he uh, he ended up being a Navy pilot as well, and probably around the same oh, time great. as you. So yeah, so that's interesting. Small world sometimes where he would fly. I'm not sure which plane he flew, but funny enough, he got into consulting and now he flies commercial. I think um, you know on the side. So small world to to some degree. So let's dig into that background a little bit. So you said you spent, what, 10, 11 years in the Navy? 11 years, yeah. Yeah, right out of college. So I went to school, went to Auburn University on our ROTC scholarship as well. Um, so, yeah, it was, I mean, it was the greatest job on earth, man. I'd still be doing it today if I, if I didn't have kids. Um, and I would not be where I am today without that experience. It's not just the leadership principles that you learn in the service. Like many of, some of those are not transportable, but many of them are. Um, it just, it, the experience just fills you with confidence and challenges sort of personally what you believe to be possible. Right. Um, I'll give you an example. The first time I landed on an aircraft carrier was, was by myself. There was nobody in my backseat. There was no instructor pilot. Um, these are the sort of things that like the, the military pushes you to do that sort of stretches your, your sort of like concept of what is, what is possible or what you can accomplish and pushes you even further. More kind of tangibly, um, a fighter squadron, squadron is just a lot like an equipment shop. You know, the, about 70% of the personnel are maintenance, uh, maintenance folks, you know, uh, jet engine mechanics, and, um, you know, folks that work on the radars, avionics technicians, people like that. So um, I was not only a pilot, I was also a division officer, so I ran a maintenance department. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time on running preventative and unplanned maintenance and, you know, maintaining uptime and talking about production cycles. And so in many ways, there, there are a lot of sort of transportable experience sets to, to what I see in the equipment world, too. And so you, you left the Navy, obviously, of the family that influenced your decision. Um, and and I, you mentioned that, you know, there, there are some similarities to early stage tech about, you know, like, you know, the grit and the, you know, the drive and the desire and, and you know, those sort of things. But <clears throat> tell us a little bit about your journey after that. So maybe let's dig into Yard Club a little bit. Yeah, so Yard Club was launched in 2013 by a mutual friend of my partner and I named uh, Colin Everett. He was the son of a heavy dirt contractor up in Toronto. Started the company is under the hypothesis that this was about the time that like Airbnb and Uber were taking off. So started the company under the hypothesis of a like peer-to-peer -peer rental marketplace for contractors uh, to help them get more uptime and more money out of their idle fleet. Um, 
we, so he launched that business in San Francisco. My partner Samir and I joined the company about a year into it as we were expanding geographically. We did a distribution channel deal with Caterpillar. We started working with, you know, cat dealers uh, and their rental arms. We built a, a suite of functions in addition to the peer-to-peer -peer marketplace that helped people manage, manage rental equipment. And then uh, Caterpillar bought the company in 2017. After the acquisition, um, you know, we, there was, it was both kind of like the product functionality and, you know, Cat was really excited about bringing sort of a modern Silicon Valley software development shop into the, into the company. And so um, we melded a lot of the Yard Club functionality into the core uh, MyDocat.com experience. And then we sort of became like a skunk works for Cat Digital uh, in San Francisco. We piloted a mobile application for telematics uh, for equipment management based on the telematics data coming off of the machines uh, called CoreLink. Um, that took off, eventually became the Cat app. So um, it's the sort of mobile front end experience for MitoCat.com now, really driven by the telematics experience too. So uh, that application is now live in hundreds of countries with hundreds of thousands of users on it. That was kind of built by the Cat Digital Labs team. A lot of the team's still with the company. Um, my partner Samir and I kept in touch and we kept talking about used equipment because we just kept getting pull from the industry. Um, around the time of, uh, Around the time COVID was started and we were all in lockdown, uh, we spun out of our uh, of our current gigs and started working on this problem. We met our third partner, Adam, through On Deck Founders. It's a it's an accelerator program for founders. Uh, we put together a couple of different hypotheses. These we conducted like hundreds of interviews with folks within the industry to see what the best way to do this was, and that was sort of the origin story for Boom Bucket. That's how we we landed on what we're doing today. Bootstrapped the company. It outgrew us in about three months. We went out, we raised capital from traditional VCs as well as folks from the industry, like uh, the Bechtel mm -hmm. family, uh, brick and mortar fund too. And uh, now we're up to twenty-five people and growing, growing pretty aggressively. Interesting enough, I have a little bit of experience not in the used equipment or heavy equipment marketplace, but marketplaces can be a really interesting challenge to solve for because obviously you have the supply and demand on both sides. So tell us a little bit about maybe some of those interesting challenges you guys are solving and what, you know, what the market's asking for. The way we think about this is that, uh, is trust, right? Trust is the mountain that we're trying to climb. Um, our hypothesis here is that if you can increase access and information within this market, um, the market becomes more efficient, which is a rising tide that lifts all boats, right? You get better outcomes for sellers and better outcomes for buyers. Many people's natural inclination, if they're selling a machine private party is to try to conceal like any sort of flaws with the machine, right? One picture, hey, ready to work, good to go on day one. And and like, you know, maybe you get a good deal out of that. The, the truth mm -hmm. of the matter is that, that distrust and that lack of transparency is priced into the market. Buyers, of course, are then gonna assume, yeah, there's a lot of stuff wrong with this machine, I don't know. So I'm gonna push price down as low as I possibly can uh, mm -hmm. because I have to assume things gonna break down. So the way we're we're trying to help what we're trying to help the market understand is that transparency is actually leads to better outcomes for everybody that's involved, and that's played out in kind of a smaller scale. Where operations are primarily on the West Coast today, but it's really taken off and kind of like towards the end of 2022, which is why we're expanding geographically. The need we're filling really is for buy most of our buyers are small and medium sized businesses, right? Um, local contractors, owner operators, you know, people who don't always have access to professional transportation networks, you know, they don't always have access to uh, financing, um, and they don't always know if like the machine they're looking at is the right one for the job. 
So we kind of fill that need on the education piece and the surrounding services for buyers to help them make sure they're getting a machine that works for their job. They've got access to financing and transportation. And oh, by the way, they've also got access to all of this other information on the machine, inspection report or sample analysis, telematics data when we can get it, maintenance history. All of that gives the buyer confidence that the machine they're getting is priced fairly and that it's going to be ready to work on day one. That's the most important thing for them, that they know it's not going to break down right after they buy it. Traditionally, how would how would those small and medium-sized businesses go about? Like, would they how would they go by the buy and sell transaction if they don't have access to some of the, you know, network that, that maybe the bigger players do? There's a couple of different ways. Like some people work with local brokers who may or may not have mm-hmm. what you're looking for. Um, but the sort of default way is to either like tap in what you're looking for on Google or go to some of the existing um, listing services like Machinery Trader mm-hmm. and Book Trader, you know, those places. And, you know, usually what you get, they're, they're great. Like we're, we're Machinery Trader Sandhills uh, customers. We use them as well. Um, but traditionally what you get is a single picture and a phone number, right? So a buyer will pick up the phone. He'll call to make sure this person is real because sometimes the people that are on like Craigslist are not real. Believe it or not, there's a lot of the trade hands on Craigslist. Call to make sure the person's real and not a scam. Uh, schedule some flights to fly out and see the machine because of course you can't trust what's written in there that it's like ready to work on day one, right? You gotta go look at yourself. Then you get a probably 15 or 20 minutes on site to crawl over the machine and inspect it yourself. You know, maybe you're an owner operator, maybe you have your mechanic go out there to take a look at it, but you get like, you know, kind of a limited window to assess it. You have no idea like what its maintenance history was. You may not know like what its usage history or ownership history looks like. And then, you know, you you haggle as much as you possibly can on site. And if you get a deal done, great. Uh, You go pick it up yourself or you call a heavy haul outfit to go get it. That's kind of what the existing uh, like trade looks like. And so one, we're saving people like the money of flying out to see the machine because they get access to all this information up front. Plus we back our buyer experience by a guarantee. Yeah, I was going to ask about the trust because <clears throat> obviously quite a bit of potential distrust in the market with some of the avenues or channels that you were alluding to. Because, um, you know, it was, it was interesting in preparation for this this podcast, I was on your website and it's there's a lot of detailed information from photos to videos to what's, you know, what's working well, what needs work. Do you, and so how do you guys go about doing that? Do you rely on, the, you know, the, the sellers or you you and your team going out there and providing that service? We have a full-time inspector who goes out and takes a look at them and does a complete uh, mechanical inspection on the machine. So I uh, think 10 to 15 year diesel mechanic um, who uh, is driving around, we've built a fairly robust application mm-hmm. for them to expect the machine to machinery. And so, you know, they do full, you know, walk around video photos, um, you know, check all the hoses. They take pictures of problem areas. They actually operate the machine. They get a video of the machine in operation. They'll do oil sample analysis on site, the whole nine yards. So one of the other things I noticed in, again, in preparation for this was um, your support for conscious culture and what that is. And so it's something I've never, I haven't stumbled across and maybe some of the viewers have, but maybe, maybe share a little bit more about that. Cause I, I found that to be interesting. Yeah. You know, I, one of the things that I kind of get excited about working in the construction technology space is porting some of these um, like modern practices that the, the technology industry employs and bringing them to the construction industry. Right. It's no secret that, you know, the construction industry is the second least technology penetrated industry on earth. Right. Conscious culture was actually a, an initiative that was started by like Adam's previous company, my partner, Adam, 
uh, while he was at Bolt. And it's a it's a it's a collective based on agreement among amongst companies to be explicit about values, explicit about culture, and to help kind of lead people into best practices for working within the hybrid remote environment. Um, if you go to consciousculture.org, you're going to see a lot of opinion pieces on like, hey, how does hybrid remote work? Um, you know, performance reviews. How do we measure? What are implicit agreements? Like a lot of this is built by, um, it was put together by folks who have been working within this industry, like in the technology industry for the last 10, 15 years and harnessing some of the, the tools like Asana and Slack and some of these other remote friendly work tools uh, to work for your company. I'll share that the first time Adam, Samir, and I sat down as a founding trio, the first order of business was to talk about values um, for two reasons. First of all, because all three of us share the opinion that values-led organizations outperform. Um, you know, you can, there, there's all the traditional business quotes like culture eats, strategy for lunch, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, at the end of the day, coming from a values-driven organization in the Navy, and seeing the success of other values-driven organizations like my partners have seen, it was very important for us to be explicit about this from day one. So we put together our values and what those values mean. That's publicly visible, by the way. You can look at our website, you can access our, anybody can access our internal values document and our work culture document. It was important to us to be explicit about these things because culture, not only like being explicit about your culture and your values, not only serves as a reinforcing mechanism for people to work well together once they're on board, it's also a screening mechanism for who you say yes and no to to, to joining the company. Right? Mm -hmm. um, we don't look at values as like something that's kind of stuck up on a wall. We talk about them at every all hands every week. Uh, it's part of our review cycle. It's one explicit interview for anybody that joins our team is totally dedicated to values adherence. You know, this person is going to is going to mesh well with our work culture, and then we have. You know, reward systems and consequences for folks that do join the team and do and do not adhere to our values. We make sure that we provide them with that feedback. Yeah, and so maybe for, for our audience, maybe can you share some of the, those values that you guys specifically have created for Boom and Bucket? Yeah, happy to. So, I mean, our number one is partners, not traders. Um, most great companies have some sort of customer obsession value, and and this is ours. Um, one of the most common complaints that I heard in this industry from equipment managers is, you know, I never hear from this guy unless he has something to sell me. And so that's that's kind of the experience we did not want to create at Boom Bucket because when you're buying and selling equipment, it's a transaction. So it's easy to sort of like fall back into transactional mode. We do a lot of stuff with our customers that is not directly revenue producing. We help them understand the value of their fleet, give them reads on the market, right? We, we work with them as partners, as a disposition partner for our sellers and as a source for sourcing, a source for equipment for our buyers. Um, get in the cab is all about outcomes and ownership. So we, um, we like to talk about areas of responsibility and giving our employees their own AORs and pieces of the business and functional areas, right? And so along with those AORs comes, you know, you, first of all, you have to earn them during onboarding. Once you've earned them, you get decision-making authority, you get budget, and you get expectation for outcomes. And that's sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that we instill in our company. Some people don't like that, and that's fine. Boom and Bucket is not the place for that, uh, but that's, that's how we operate. Uh, getting your hands dirty is about hard work, right? Um, we don't just work hard. We work smart, but we do it hard too, right? Um, that's that extra hour at the end of the day is really what uh, can make me the difference between success and failure for us. Building bigger, bigger is about shooting for big outcomes. There is a tendency towards incrementalism in uh, in this industry. 
like very small improvements made over time. And that's great. That's part of the quality mindset. And it's sort of a, a the source of that is the manufacturing mindset, right? Uh, but in technology, we're trying to radically transform what this industry is capable of. And so to do that, we have to think like for 10x, not 10% movements. Um, and last but, but not least is BU. Um, we celebrate all everybody that joins our team, um, no, you know, no matter what their backgrounds or what their inclinations are or where they come from. We have kind of a motley crew of folks, as you can imagine. We have like world-class technologists who are, who are a little bit different. And we have like equipment salesmen, many of whom were, you know, have backgrounds as, as uh, techs in the industry. And so uh, in order to make that whole like melting pot of folks from different backgrounds work well together, we make sure that, you know, we allow people to, to be who they are. The other thing that's a huge component of the BU piece is feedback. Feedback being, uh, you know, bi-directional for everyone, which is counter-cultural for this industry. Um, and feedback mechanism for everybody to improve their uh, be the best version of themselves, right? To improve how they uh, how they work every day. Um, and we back that up with money when at our mouths, right? We provide education stipends for the team. We, you know, align, we, you know, have budget for folks to join professional organizations to build their personal networks. Um, all of the feedback, learning and development all kind of work hand in hand. That's really cool. So you, you've touched on this as, as, as part of one of the values that you mentioned, um, but kind of where the industry's headed, like, where do you think, like looking, like having that longer vision, that longer mindset, um, looking beyond, you know, in tech, sometimes it's hard to look beyond the next quarter, you know, especially from, if you're on a go-to-market or sales or revenue team, um, what is that in your view, what does that look like for the industry? And then I think then, then the second follow-up that would be like specifically for boom and bucket, like how you guys are going to play in that arena. I think one of the themes that we're making a big bet on is data and the importance of data to this industry and the industry's increased reliance of on and understanding of data and how that works for the business, for understanding how machine, you know, the quality of machines and what you can expect out of machine performance. Um, I think that's, a you know, telematics, the proliferation of telematics over the last five to 10 years has been a huge game changer for this industry, right? It not just helps with the basics of, hey, where's my machine and how much field does it need and what are the hours to better run my PMs? But, you know, it's also changing how people think about using their equipment and what types of equipment they need to get the job done. And I think that's pretty exciting. So I think from our perspective, the data layer behind these machines, we view that as a way to make our, our, our uh, marketplace more trusted and more transparent. Data objective information helps you know, resolve disputes, right? It helps uh, with transparency. The data doesn't lie, right? So I think that's a huge trend that you're gonna see continue to shape this industry. It already has in some way with telematics, but incorporating that data into the buying and selling trade and viewing data as part of the machine ownership, the, the machine's data history, I think is gonna be a big trend for the machine in the future. And that data is not just telematics, it's also maintenance history and ownership history and usage, some of which is reflected in the telematics data. But all of that information is an asset, that asset should be included in the value of the machine. You touched on it a little bit, but for boom and bucket, and I, I think I understand the, the, you know, how you guys are leveraging data, and I'm sure there's going to be future instances or versions of what you guys are doing. Um, do you see anyone else in the industry? Like, who else in the industry is maybe doing looking at some of that data as well? You, you, you touched on telematics and, and you know, some of that. But 
where else do you see that data becoming more and more important? Yeah, I think on the equipment management side, um, it's pretty well established. You've got some folks like Tenna that are doing exciting work with mixed fleet telematics. Obviously, what a signer is doing is very, is very exciting, too. Um, building of the data layer for workflow management and machine performance and you know, maintenance cycles. Uh, we really like what Gearflow is doing as well. Um, so they're very specifically focused on parts. And that is, um, that is a super challenging data problem. Right, matching the right parts to the right machine and like all the interface, it's a, it's a very big, it's a big data problem, and we really like what they're doing with that. Um, I think when you look at obviously, you know, organizations like Ritchie Brothers use data as very uh, strategic. They just acquired uh, Rouse Analytics. Um, you look at Randall Riley and some of the stuff that they're doing with the Equipment Watch acquisition, as well as their uh, UCC One database. Um, the industry, the industry understands the importance of data. Uh, and I think um, you're going to see those products become more sophisticated and easier to access over time, just like you see it working in you know, manufacturing and supply chain. And some of these existing industries that have fairly sophisticated data products available today off the shelf, that's going to proliferate over into, uh, into construction equipment as well. Yeah, and I expect I think both the signer and Boom and Bucket will be headed to Vegas in March for Con Expo. Um, what are your what are your expectations? What are you guys hoping for when you go? We've got a booth. It's not too far from the signers, mm -hmm. right? We're in the North Hall. Um, you know, we view Con Expo as th there's a couple of important things we want to do. First of all, is just accessing a lot of the partnerships that we want to talk through. Um, it's also just the you know, like it's the best place to get the word out about your business. Uh, probably the biggest. We talk about trust, right? Mm -hmm. One of the biggest sticking points we have with new customers is that they've never heard of us before. Mm -hmm. Right, the buckets a new company, mm -hmm. so like new companies come with risk, and so that's part of what we're solving with uh, with Con Expo. So, yeah, we got a booth. We're going to be there. We're going to be meeting meeting with people. We're participating on the Wednesday afternoon um, construction tech panel, basically like a Society for Construction Solutions mm -hmm. meeting, and then we're also running a million dollar sweepstakes, so folks can sign up for a chance to win a million dollars, and then we got a bunch of other prizes too, like a Traeger grill and um, a uh, butcher box subscription and some other stuff. No, cool. Very cool. Um, so you went to, and this won't be the last thing I touched on. You went to Auburn, SEC football, and I'm just making the assumption that everybody that goes to Auburn <laughs> likes football and SEC football. So forgive me if I'm off base here. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty safe assumption. Um, how are they going to get their magic back? And you know, they they were obviously phenomenal for 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 a while. And you know, everyone has ups and downs. I actually went to University of Colorado, and we've just been abysmal for the past decade um and we injected ourselves with uh, a new head coach with you know prime prime time Deion sanders but you know what what's your view on auburn and what you know what are they gonna what are they doing to get back you know because alabama and georgia right now are obviously the the kings in sec so first of all war eagle to all, all my auburn peeps um yeah auburn football it's a, it's a bittersweet experience being an auburn football fan you know we had a great run in the early 2010 type era but uh yeah i think so so look hugh freeze is a question mark you know for a little while we got excited because we thought neon dion was coming to auburn too but uh that didn't work out um so hugh freeze i love a redemption story mm -hmm. right so like my hope is that he's kind of like you know learned from his experience at old mess mm -hmm. and like served his penalty time at liberty where by the way he did, did a great job at liberty right like uh racked up some good stats mm -hmm. there so um I'm, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic that Hugh Freeze is going to be able to 
uh, get Auburn and Screw's groove back. Um, it all boils down to recruiting in my mind, right? Like that's that's kind of the key to any any high performing team. If you want to talk about it, like in business and sports, whatever, like being able to effectively articulate a vision and then recruiting a really first class team around that vision is the key to success for any organization. This kind of comes back to our conscious culture discussion, right? So those values, our culture, the things that are what we lead with when we bring people into the organization. And I think if, you know, if Hugh Freeze can, can redefine how Auburn football works and he can start to recruit effectively around that, you're going to see Auburn as a, as a powerhouse in a few years. I don't doubt that. And I think obviously the introduction of NIL and, and all that stuff where, you know, players are able to make, um, I guess, you know, an income for a lack of a better term. And it's kind of, it's, it's a new world for college football, right? In the NCAA, I think it's a little bit of the wild west until they figure that all this out. You know, I actually, I think it's a, the article I read on it the other day, like reframed it as a retention tool, right? So, you know, juniors are really, you know, superstar sophomores who probably would have jumped, jumped ship to go straight to the draft because they're making some decent money. They'll actually finish their degrees. They'll stay, you know, they'll stay with the, uh, with the organization to play score seasons. Um, yeah, I'm excited about that. Too. Yeah. Cause you hear a lot about it in the news about, you know, the incoming freshmen and the recruiting and the NIL, but like NIL is obviously applicable to across the span of your four to six years of college. Um, and I, I, th I like the way that you, you frame that up with the retention. Cause I mean, that, that's applicable to business too. You find superstars on your team and you do, you do your best to retain them as well. It's not always just monetarily, but the things you alluded to and the programs you guys have in place and the culture you've created to, uh, to keep them from, from jumping ship. Um, and so, yeah, th there's obviously some parallels there, but I think we're, uh, we're up on time. I really appreciate you joining me today. I think we had a great conversation and we're looking forward to, uh, I know the team's looking forward to seeing you out in Vegas in what, two months, less than a month yeah. and a half, something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're, we're excited. Are you, I assume, are you, are you personally going to be there as well? Oh yeah. Be there for the okay. entire show. Uh, four, four days in Vegas is, is on the upper boundary of what I usually do there, but, uh, <laughs> right. I always joke that if I have to spend a second night in Vegas, that's one night too many. So I, I think yeah. I join you there. So, <laughs> um, but it's going to be pretty crazy. I haven't, per, you know, I haven't been, is it every four? Is it, I, I know they don't do kind of three years. That's right. Okay. Every three years. Yeah, they the to, the last, yeah. The last one was right as the pandemic was kicking off. I think everybody jumped ship on the last day because they were, things were getting locked down wild so yeah some pent-up demand for this one but it's it'll be interesting to see how obama affected this because they were so close together right uh, uh -huh. i'm not sure how many organizations have the international level organizations have budget for both lots of interesting right. like advancements in electric equipment at obama that was kind of the big theme there mm -hmm. so i'm excited mm -hmm. to see like not just to talk to our customers and to our potential partners but also to see where the you know where the industry is heading from a technology perspective for the equipment too mm -hmm. yeah i because everyone's there to show off some of the, all their cool stuff uh, and all the yeah. cool things they're working on. So um, both the signer and boom and bucket included. Well, thanks again, Aaron. I really appreciate it. And thanks for being on the show. And we'll uh, look at, again, looking forward to seeing Vegas soon. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Chris. Thanks for listening to episode three of the Dirty Boot Show. Join us next time for our conversation with Mark Yates from Yes Group. If you'd like to stay up on the latest podcast updates and news, make sure to follow us on social media.